This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor in sickness and in health, Paul. <laughs> Paul, how are you doing? You're I think the healthy I'm doing one. a little better than you're probably doing <laughs> these days. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right. How about you? Well, I, I hope it's not too distracting to people. I have either a terrible cold or allergies or something, and I have been under the weather the last few days. And so my voice is a lot lower. I don't know, maybe people will be like, wow, Trevor, you sound a lot, a lot better these days. <laughs> It'll be like that episode of Friends where Phoebe has a cold and she has like her sexy voice or whatever. Maybe that's what it'll right. be. Right, <laughs> that's probably what will happen. I'll, I'll disappoint everybody next time when I'm back to normal. <laughs> but I hope that, you know, coughing and, and anything else that might happen on mine, I'll try to edit it out, but hopefully we'll be okay. Uh, right now, it just sounds like I'm inside of my head, <laughs> but but doing well. I'm excited to have this this conversation. Yeah, uh, I do. T- today, we will be talking about short books, fiction, and we'll get to that here in a second. But first, what have you been reading, Paul? Yeah, I've actually had a really good stretch of reading recently. I've been reading not not unrelated to our episode, a lot of pretty short books, and so I've been finishing a lot of books lately, um, including. Mark Haber's St. Sebastian's Abyss, uh, Jan Foss's The Other Name, and also Woman Running in the Mountains by Yuko Tsushima, all of which I absolutely loved. Mm -hmm. And then I also just finished listening to Zadie Smith, her book, The Autograph Man. And unfortunately, I think that kind of confirmed the fact that although I absolutely love her essays and nonfiction, I just don't get along very well with her fiction. So uh-huh. <laughs> I'll keep trying because I just I know she's so talented. And I think it's just one of those where maybe just her style doesn't necessarily click with me. But um, just a couple days ago, but most recently, I started uh, Damon Galgut's In a Strange Room, which won the Booker Prize last year. Um, man, really enjoying it so far. It's it's really good. It's a family saga focusing on an Afrikaner family in South Africa. Um, and so, you know, as the, as the novel opens, there's a young girl who kind of overhears her dying mother promise the family's uh, black servant that she will inherit the family's property after she dies. And so, you know, I'm fairly early on, but I know that that's kind of a, a big hinge of the book and I assume has something to do with the title. Um, so yeah, really enjoying it so far. I'll read just a really quick snippet because anybody who's read his books before knows that he's an amazing writer. His, his language is beautiful. So um, I'll just read this real fast. A journey is a gesture inscribed in space. It vanishes even as it's made. You go from one place to another and on to somewhere else again. And already behind you, there is no trace that you were there, that you were ever there. The roads you went down yesterday are full of different people. Now, none of them knows who you are in the room. You slept in last night. A stranger lies in the bed. Dust covers over your footprints. The marks of your fingers are wiped off the door. From the floor and table, the bits and pieces of evidence that you might have dropped are swept up and thrown away, and they never come back again. The very air closes behind you like water, and soon your presence, which felt so weighty and permanent, is completely gone. Things happen once only and are never repeated, never return, except in memory. So, I don't know, just every time I've read one of his books, I'm I'm pretty blown away, I think. What I've read so far, it's it's very deserving of, of winning the Booker last year. So I'm looking forward to finishing that. Yeah, I love his books. I, I haven't read that one yet. I have it, and I'm excited to. I guess I'm saving it for something. But uh, definitely really enjoyed uh, everything I've read of his so far, which is most of what he's written. Yeah. So 
Yeah, he's really good. How about you? What have you been reading? So I'm kind of in a bit of a nonfiction kick this week. Oh, interesting. Um, the the first one that I'll bring up is an, a, a new book from Notting Hill Editions called Human or sorry called Midlife: Humanity's Secret Weapon by Andrew Jameson. Hmm. And do you know these Notting Hill Editions? Have you seen those? I I saw them on your social media post in the last couple of days, but previous to that, I was not familiar with them. So there are these little hardbacks that are focused on the essay. This one's like 130 pages, you know, so it's not like, you know, a 20 page essay or anything like that. Um, but they're really um, varied in topics and they're not just contemporary authors. Like this is Andrew Jameson. He is a practicing psychoanalyst or um, psychotherapist, I guess is, is the way I should put it. That's how he puts it. Um, but a, a practicing psychotherapist. And, but they have books that are compilations of other essays by folks like Virginia Woolf or something like that, too. You know, I think there are 30, 35 of them out there and they've been going on for the last five years or so. Um, they're really nice to hold and really nice to read. Um, but this is just so interesting to me. Uh, he's talking about this midlife crisis that people go through and calling it humanity's secret weapon. On the back of the book, it talks about how. There really aren't very many animals who have a, a long post-reproductive cycle of in, in their in life. Mm-hmm. You know, they reproduce and then they're gone, except for like the blue whale or something like that, that right. the older people find food for the pods. So what do humans have that make it so that we have this long uh, post-reproductive time of life? And he talks about this time is being pretty vital to having a, a, a kind of a transformative uh, quality for humanity. And here's his introduction. Since I began practicing as a psychotherapist, three quarters of my clients have been between the age of 35 and 55. They invariably arrive for their first session in a state of depression, anxiety, and uncertainty, often unsure whether to give up a profession or a marriage. In this state of near breakdown, they feel overwhelmed by some insoluble, intractable problem. As I have traversed this challenging emotional rock face with client after client, I am, time and again, impressed by how these periods of inner turmoil provide us with an unmatched opportunity to review our lives and explore our personalities. We can then attempt to adapt and reshape those aspects of our nature which constrict our development that hold back our true potential and impede our sense of well-being. I just, you know, I think that it, it sounds like a positive look at this time that, that we're going through. Um, right. I think you and I both um, mm-hmm. of this midlife, whether it's good or bad. And I thought, oh, that could be a positive uh, perspective for me um, because yeah, the anxiety is certainly there. I think almost every phase of life might have a, a bunch of it, but Based on what he's saying, this is a fairly common time to feel, you know, kind of an existential um, anxiety. And so anyway, I'm excited about that. Yeah. And then the other one I'm reading is Alia Trabuco-Zeron's When Women Kill, translated uh, from the Spanish by Sophie Hughes. This is four crimes of women killers, you know, murderers. And this is an attorney, or, you know, at least a, started out as an attorney, Alia Trabuco Zeron. And she's specifically looking at it from the perspective of, hey, I'm not trying to rehabilitate 
these women or say that, you know, becoming a, a murderer is the key to, you know, femininity <laughs> progressing. But she is talking a little bit about how people that she would, would communicate with at first thought she was just talking about women who were killed mm-hmm. and like, Oh yeah, yeah. Let, let, that's a good topic. But no, when, and when she says, no, I'm talking about women who killed, they get uncomfortable. But for men, it's like a given, you know, it's like almost even a sign of masculinity versus, right. um, you know, depravity, even though of course I'm not, she's not saying that it is something all men do or are capable of, or that it is the sign of masculinity. She's just saying, you know, it's something with our language and the way we talk about this stuff that it's uncomfortable to talk about the women killers. And again, she's not trying to rehabilitate them or justify them or anything like that. But um, yeah, I'm not too far into it, but it, it looks like it's got an interesting, uh, you know, premise. And that's uh, that was that came out earlier this month from Coffeehouse Press. So it's it's looking really interesting. So, yeah, two. Two nonfiction books for me this week. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. I, I saw them tweet out about that the last day or two, and, and it definitely caught my eye just for some of the very reasons you were talking about. It's such a different topic than what you so often hear about. So I'll be curious to hear what you think about that one. Yeah, I'll let you know. Um, well, before we move on too much, I do want to to bring up and, and thank a couple of new, um, well, three new Patreon supporters, uh, Ryan Crowell. C-R-O-W-E-L-L. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, Ryan, but thank you so much for your support. Uh, Ryan signed up for the dollar a month, and it really does help, as we say at the end of every episode. These go a long way, even a dollar, you know, uh, that that really does help with the costs of running this. Um, But we also got Scott Eaton, who signed up a few days ago at $5 a month, and then yesterday I was excited to wake up and see that Debbie Baker has uh, has also signed up at $5 a month. So thank you so much, everybody who has signed up to support us. We know it might not be forever. <laughs> you know, your support is not indefinite. And we hope to, to make sure that um, we produce things that uh, show our appreciation and uh, make you feel good about supporting us that way as long as you can. And we're even, we're still thinking about ways that we can make it a little bit more, um, exciting to support us on Patreon, you know, rather than just a mention. And we do send out book boxes at the, at the certain levels, which are fun to put together and send out. Um, but we are looking at ways to also get some other exclusive content that doesn't necessarily take apart or take away, um, from our podcast here. We're not going to change anything here, but maybe a little bit of additional content for Patreon supporters. Um, and it looks like we're getting to numbers where that makes sense to do, you know, um, yeah. to make make sure that we're we're giving back a little bit more to folks who are supporting us that way. But any way that you support us, just listening, interacting, we have a lot of, of listener feedback um, for this episode today. It's been so much fun, and we just wanted to thank you um, front front and center here on the at the beginning of our show. Yeah, thank you so much, everybody. We really do appreciate it. Yeah. Anything else, Paul, before we jump into 
a little bit of our talk about this topic and why we, why you chose it and what we mean by short books and et cetera. Anything else? Yeah, I don't think anything else. I think, like you said, we have so much great feedback. We better just get going so that we can make sure we have time to, because I, I imagine with these five books that I'm going to talk about today, I like them so much that I might uh, blabber on and on a little bit. So. <laughs> Fair warning, everybody, um, but also exciting because this yeah. is why we're here is to blabber on just a little bit, yeah. hopefully in fun ways. Well, so short books, you, you mentioned this topic. You said short books. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that both of us took that, at least I did at first, as fiction. Did mm-hmm. you mean it that way, or were you just thinking short books in general when you first presented the topic? We are, yeah, we are just so the listeners I... know, we are going to be talking about fiction today. We're going to sp- split this topic up. We're going to focus on fiction. We'll probably come back to it. Both of the books I brought up this morning would apply to a nonfiction episode, but... You know, t- tell me where you, where, you, where where you were going here. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know that I in my mind that I made that differentiation when I suggested the topic, but then as soon as I started thinking about books that I would like to recommend, almost all of the ones that initially popped up were, were definitely fiction. So I think you know that's where my mind went first as I started to kind of look over my bookshelves and everything. And you know, as far as why I chose this topic, I'm on the record on this podcast many times. I'm I'm a lover of big books. I love big, messy books where authors just, you know, go for it and take a big swing. And I think there's so much, so many amazing ones, you know, out there that Moby Dicks and 2666 and Bleak House, all these huge books that are just some of my very favorites. And again, what I kind of like about those is their messiness, their bagginess, you know, sometimes they're very immersive because you spend weeks or months with these people. But there's something so special about a short book when it's done really well. You know, I don't know that it's really possible to have a perfect long book, even the ones you love the most. There's probably things about it that, you know, would not necessarily be considered perfect. But I do think you can approach that with a short book. You can approach perfection, kind of like we talked about in our short story episode. You know, there's like these little tiny gems where it has just the perfect amount of words. There's not one thing that you would change about it. And so I really like that. And then I also, you know, there's such an interesting range when it comes to short fiction, you know. Many of them, because of their brevity, are like a little snapshot of a day or a really short period of time. Um, But then you have those other ones that are so interesting. And some of those I might bring up today, where within 100 or 150 pages, you're just amazed by how much the author can pack in. You know, you feel like you've spent decades or an entire life with someone. So those are just, you know, some of my initial thoughts. But I just, yeah, there's so many great short books out there. And I think there's, Throughout history, there's been um, backs and forths with, like, I guess, the marketability or, or different things about a shorter book versus a longer book. But I do feel like right now we're in a good period where there's a lot of excellent short fiction that's being produced. So Yeah, yeah. yeah I agree with you. And I love publishers who focus on it. There's New Directions, for example, often has lines, and they're various, of short books. Um, we're probably... We're probably talking about novellas to an extent, but I think we strayed away from that word. Um, not because it's it, we're going to be talking about, maybe every book we talk about today is, would be considered a novella by some, but I guess we just kind of thought, let's just be a little more general and a little less tied to a term that people will disagree with and want to argue right. about what is a novella. That's this many pages or to this many words or something like that. Um, we're just talking about short books 
you know, and that's a little bit more fluid of a term because it's relative. It's relative to long books. <laughs> so, you know, for all I know, you're talking about something that's 250 pages or even 300 pages could be a short book in some regards. I don't necessarily know if that's what we're talking about either, but, you know, just so listeners know, we're, we're being purposefully vague and general in what we mean by short, and we're not necessarily going to use the term novella, though I'll be honest, every book that I picked up and, and I'm going to recommend later probably is a novella, but, you know, we, like I say, we just didn't want to really jump into that. Um, but yeah, a lot of the publishers who publish novellas as, as their own little editions, I don't know how much money those make, but man, I love those. I love being able to pick up this, this slim little um, book, you know, perfect bound book that is easy to read in a, in a session as you sit by the, you know, by the lamp or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I love those. I, I love it. And um, I love being able to, like you say, sometimes you get into this little perfect world that's um, quite not necessarily tidy, but maybe bound together a little bit differently than a long novel would be. Uh, it's just so, so nice. And they can do things differently than long novels, just like long novels can do things different from, from them. But they just take a take it the right shape in in these in this form, and so I'm I'm excited to to chat a little bit and and see what your choices are. And just so listeners also are aware, at the end of this episode, we are going to be doing another assigned reading moment. Um, Paul and I have have both chosen a book, a short book, to assign to the other one. Um, and we'll be following up on that episode here in a in a couple of a couple of times. So about four four weeks, I guess, is when our assigned reading follow up will be. And we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a second. But yeah, assigned assigned reading is coming our way, and I can't wait. I hope you pick one that I enjoy sitting down under the lamp and, uh, <laughs> and reading. No, Paul. <laughs> I do too. I always feel a little strange amount of pressure when I'm picking a book for you because it's like. You want it to be good. I want you to like it. Yeah, so yeah. We'll see how it goes. All right. Well, any any other thoughts on on short novels? I mean, there there are certain authors I wanted to bring up. Um, they may come up later on in our lists, but there are authors who just excel at the short book. I'm thinking of like Muriel Spark. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's Anita Bruckner. A lot, you know, her novels, almost all of them, I think, are are short. In fact, maybe every single one of them would be a, a short book. Um, and her output is wonderful. Cesar Ira, you know, that a few of our listeners recommended and that I brought up in their last episode. Um, he's got a, f- a couple books that are a little bit large, like the hair, um, that I did not like. I didn't like the hair, but I love his short hundred page, uh, books that come again in their own little edition. I just, I love, I love how he does that because they're messy. They're funky books mm-hmm. and yet they're perfect. <laughs> yeah. You know, P- Penelope Fitzgerald again, you know, at the end of her life put out those books that are they're all short and slim and and perfect in their own little ways. There's just so many great uh, authors that you can explore their whole their whole bi- bibliography. If you just sit down for a week almost, you could probably get through every one of their books. Yeah. Um, because they focused on short books, but they're they're wonderful and rich and still have just a lot of life in them. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting what you said about certain authors specializing, or or at least your favorite books tend to be their shorter ones. 
you mentioned to Ira. And that's something, again, going back to the short story conversation we had, where often you will find an author is really good at short or really good at long. There are some that can cross over and do both, which I think is pretty stunning in its own way. But yeah, it's nice. I, I like when somebody can find, when an author finds their niche and they just really excel at it. Um, so yeah, that, that's an interesting way to look at it too. I think some of the books I bring up today, um, there's a couple, at least one I can think of where the author has had great success with both long and short books. But now as we're having our conversation, I'm going to be thinking in the back of my mind you know, about some of their other books and, and kind of see how that plays out. Well, and I was thinking too, to my youth and some mm. of the first books that I ended up loving or, you know, kind of had those moments of sitting down and reading a book in one sitting, things like Of Mice and Men, you know, that Steinbeck novel was really powerful to me at the time. And I did read that one in just a few hours one one day. I, I, I remember where I was. I was not home. I was on a little trip I had driven to a beautiful place in southern Idaho, kind of an old mountainy mining area, oh, cool. and was there for a few hours and brought my book because I was waiting for someone at a at a like a diner or cafe or something, and I, I read it there. And that's just a beautiful reading memory of mine. Is this short book, and you know I've brought up the Turn of the Screw before, and how that one just this short novel. Um, one that I read a few years ago that would classify as kind of a classic is, is um, <clears throat> um, Alexander's Bridge by Willa Cather. I think that that's a, an amazing little short novel, her first published novel. And they're just some great classic short books that I think can really work to grab new readers um, or scare them off, <laughs> right. you know, depending on how, was- how they go. But. When you were mentioning those classics, I was thinking back to school and, and like the Red Badge of Courage is another one. I, I don't know how long some of these are. I don't remember if some of them uh-huh. might even be like long <laughs> short stories, but then The Awakening by Kate Chopin. And then um, there was another one I had in mind. I'm trying to think what it was. Slipped your mind. Oh, well. Slipped my mind. But yeah, <laughs> it is interesting. There, there were definitely some. And I think sometimes maybe the professors would assign those because realistically they knew <laughs> the college students might actually finish them because they were a smaller size too. I'm sure that played into it. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, as we get to our topic, like we say, we've each picked five to discuss today and we're moving a little bit quickly because we've got a lot of listener suggestions. They're very good. And, and we want to, to read as many of those as we can. And, you know, listeners, we are trying to find a good balance here. So if we can get any feedback, do you, do you like when we have kind of lengthy, uh, listener feedback sections or do you like it if we pick out maybe a handful to focus on um you know we're, we're trying to figure it out we, we hate to leave anybody off because they're good you know there we do leave some off that are short or just mention a book's name which we love to get on twitter mm-hmm. you know just a book's name might might spark our memory of something that we want but those are not necessarily ones we're, we're looking to share in the the podcast just a book list but we get a lot of really long, you know, thoughtful replies and we hate to leave them off. But at the same time, we recognize that maybe, maybe for some listeners, that's not the way they want it. So we're, we're trying to, to see what the best way to do this is because we can go on for quite a while. But yeah. today we're going to go on for just a little bit. We've got two yeah. sections. 
let's let's start out by by going over this. Um, this is our first little batch of listener feedback when Paul sent out a tweet saying, "Hey, we're looking at short books. What do you got? Here's what here's what we've we've heard." So our first one came from Tom. He says, "I'll recommend Remembering by Wendell Berry." Kentucky farmer and journalist Andy Catlett wakes midlife into the darkness of physical trauma. He has lost his right hand. In spiritual despair, quote, this is an age of divorce, Barry says elsewhere. He's literally far away from home, at present in San Francisco. Andy struggles to reconnect with the people and place that can heal him. The narrative arc may be easy to guess, but Barry's evocative, rich weave of present conflict and lifelong memory produces a kind of book-length poem toward the possibility of restoration. People who read Barry often find themselves wanting to read much more of him. I guess I've been one of them. Remembering is not a bad place to start. And then he says, P.S. I really appreciate the thought and effort you guys continue to put into the podcast. You've given me a few new directions in my reading and encouraged me to do it more often, as opposed to streaming who knows what. Your voices have kept me company through some otherwise empty pandemic evenings. Thank you so much, Tom. That means a lot. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Tom. That's a really nice thought there at the end. Uh, this next one is from Bonnie. It says, Hi, Trevor and Paul. Some of the most wonderful books I've read are short. I'll start the list with Laird Hunt's stunningly beautiful Zori. How this author, with whom I have no acquaintance, wrote such a beautiful book depicting one woman's life from about the 1930s on in under 200 pages is quite remarkable. But by the end of the book, I knew Zori like I'd known her all my life. Next up, the recently read So Long, See You Tomorrow by William Maxwell. Have you ever finished a book and not known where you were for a full five minutes or so? Yeah, it's that kind of book. Maxwell was a real wordsmith and the language will just knock your socks off. Just so beautiful and haunting. Anita Bruckner was a master of the short novel that features wonderful, complex character studies. If you love languishing in long, beautiful sentences that make your head spin, you could read any she, anything she's written, or, like me, everything she's written. <laughs> Congratulations, Bonnie. I think I remember when you posted that. Hmm. Um, now time to reread it again. <laughs> exactly. I'd be remiss if I didn't include Vivian Gornick's lengthy list of short books on her essays about reading, writing, and life in New York City. She's introduced me to more writers than you can shake a stick at. I've read four of her books so far, and her memoir, Fierce Attachments, might be a good place to start. Finally, I recently read two short books recommended by one of you two in your Best of 2021 episode. Coincidentally, they were written by an author recommended by Gornick, Natalia Ginsburg's Valentino and Sagittarius. Depicting life in Italy in the 1950s, they are a bit of a rough ride with some decidedly unlikable characters who just keep hoping that the fraud, selfishness, and unsavory acquaintances will eventually enable everything to all work out for the best. Wishful thinking. <laughs> you guys do such a great job with the podcast, but this will be a very high interest episode for me. And look at that. I didn't even mention Claire Keegan, but I feared somebody else would because, well, small things like these. <laughs> Bonnie. <laughs> Thank, you, Bonnie. Thank you, Bonnie. Um, our next one is from Sean, and he sent quite a few great little descriptions. So I'm going to read a couple of those here. Uh, the first one, he says, here are some utterly fantastic short novels that maybe nobody else will have mentioned yet. The Belt by Ahmad Abu Daman, translated by Nadia Benabid, an autobiographical novel by a Saudi journalist who has been living in and reporting from France for decades. He wrote it in French so his daughter could read it someday. The author grew up in a small tribal village in Saudi Arabia near the Yemeni border 
and the belt is a vivid portrait of traditional village life that'll upend pretty much any stereotype you've ever had about what that experience might be like, including at least one unforgettable, sassily feminist scene. That sounds good. The next one he recommends is Malagosh by Joey Como, an affecting story about a teenage girl who, with her parents, moved back to her terminally ill dad's Nova Scotian hometown because that's where he wants to die. Her bright idea is to create a computer virus containing surreptitiously recorded dad jokes and other poignant family moments so as to infect the world with his memory. And then the, the last one I'll read here is Country Dance by Marjad Evans a 1932 novella by an English writer who, for her own personal reasons, was obsessed with the Welsh borderlands. In this tale of passion and murder, the mixed-blood Welsh and English protagonist, Anne, navigates her split identity in a text with its own slippery borders. That sounds really good. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, I think that, I mean, a lot of these sound good, but that one kind of just grabbed me right away. I know. (laughs) So, all right, a few more here. This one's from Padma. And Bonnie, yes, you're right. Someone else is going to bring up Claire Keegan. Mm-hmm. I read Claire Keegan's Small Things Like These and Adania Shibley's Minor Detail late last year and really loved both of them. Both are really slim, but are really intense and emotional reads. They do so much work at the level of language. Um, and yeah, Claire Keegan was one of, she probably could have shown up on my best of 2021 books too. I loved Small Things Like These and I've loved Foster in the past. So good stuff for sure. Uh, the next one is from Delphin Strunk. It says, Death in Venice by Thomas Mann. Writer visits Venice, becomes smitten, dies. There's some minor details omitted. So yeah. <laughs> I like how you turned that short book into a very short capsule there. I know, <laughs> quite I like that too. <laughs> Almost sounds like a haiku or something. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the next one is from Cody Heron. It says, Snake's Nest, or A Tale Badly Told by Lito Evo, uh, follows a variety of characters in the Brazilian port town around World War II and should be better known. And then also The Member of the Wedding by Carson McCullers, about a girl becoming obsessed with her brother's wedding and is one of the best child points of view out there. I have read Carson McCullers, but not The Member of the Wedding. That's what I'm saving for some reason still. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I read A Heart is a Lonely Hunter last the Heart is a Lonely Hunter last year, and I have not read any others at first, but that one I do own, so maybe I'll have to read that one soon. Oh, you should look at also The Ballad of the Sad Cafe. It's oh, so yeah. good. It's so good. Okay, I will. All right. Nicholas Graham, Calvino, Invisible Cities. It's an epitome of everything the imagination contains. Again, a very short little encapsulation of, of a short book. <clears throat> and then Richard Freeman, A Month in the Country, by J.L. Carr. The excavation of a medieval burial ground yields attendant romance and drama. That might come up a little bit later. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thought it might. And then A Fortnight in September by R.C. Sheriff. Sheriff. Um, uh, and I've seen this pop up a lot on Instagram from, from listeners who last year were reading it and telling me about it in, in my, um, <clears throat> you know, what are you reading this, uh, mm. this year post. And it looks so good. It's a middle-class family, plays out their dreams and aspirations in a two-week vacation at the seashore. Mm. It sounds like a nice a nice thing to, to join that family on. Yeah, that does. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our first batch of, of listener feedback. We'll, we'll come back to it in a second. But I think, I think let's go ahead and start our list. We're going to share five. Let's share a couple and then come okay. back 
um, for, for some more listener feedback, a game, and then we'll finish off our list and then go finish off the episode with some assigned reading. That's the, that's the map we've got in front of us. Yeah. We've got a full episode today. Lots of fun stuff. All right, Paul, what's, what's the first one you want to bring up? So the first one I'm going to bring up is Hurricane Season by Fernanda Melchor. Um, I first read this book a few years ago, and it really has just kind of stuck with me and haunted me ever since. I was looking back and I included it in my top 10 books of 2020. And at the time I wrote real brief description, I, I said it felt like jumping into a raging river and holding on for dear life. Dark, grimy, violent, and incredibly compulsive. It refuses to provide the reader with any relief, even once you've turned the last page. And I think that's definitely been the case. It's one of those that just kind of picks at your brain. You know, you just, it comes up just in passing all the time. And in some ways it reminds me a lot of maybe Bolaño's 2666 or the works of Ariana Harwitz in its depictions of poverty. There's a lot of violence and then just kind of desperation, but you know, I don't want to compare it directly to those cause it's very much its own thing. Um, I read a really excellent review on NPR by Gabino Iglesias. And he says, this is the story of a dead witch, her daughter, the people around her, her murderers, and the village in which she lived. It is also a story about the kind of depravity that happens when upward social mobility is not an option. However, Meltor is never judgmental. These people are the way they are because they don't have any other options. I thought that was really good. I, I'd be hard-pressed to describe it any better than that. It, it does show some really dark things. There's a lot of strong language. There's a lot of violence. But Meltor does a very good job of showing you like exactly what Gabino said there is just it's because they are stuck in the situation and it often leads to these types of things. So, you know, it's the language is unrelenting and really bleak, um, but none of the extremes ever feel unnecessary. It just kind of reveals the characters and situations in which they live. So I'll just quickly read a short excerpt here just to give people a little taste of her language. Um, This is the very beginning of the book. They reach the canal along the track leading up from the river their slingshots drawn for battle and their eyes squinting, almost stitched together in the midday glare. There were five of them, their ringleader, the only one in swimming trunks, red shorts that blazed behind the parched crops of the cane fields, still low in early May. The rest of the troop trailed behind him in their underwear, all four caked in mud up to their shins, all four taking turns to carry the pail of small rocks they'd taken from the river that morning, all four scowling and fierce, and so ready to give themselves up for the cause that not even the youngest, bringing up the rear, would have dared admit he was scared. The elastic of his slingshot pulled taut in his hands, the rock snug in the leather pad, primed to strike anything that got in his way at the very first sign of an ambush. Be that the caw of the Bientavio, perched unseen like a guard in the trees behind them, the rustle of leaves being thrashed aside, or the whoosh of a rock cleaving the air just beyond their noses. The breeze warm and the almost white sky thick with ethereal birds of prey and a terrible smell that hit them harder than a fistful of sand in the face, a stench that made them want to hawk it up before it reached their guts, that made them want to stop and turn around. But the ringleader pointed to the edge of the cattle track, and all five of them, crawling along the dry grass, all five of them packed together in a single body, all five of them surrounded by blowflies, finally recognized what was peeping out from the yellow foam on the water's surface the rotten face of a corpse floating among the rushes and the plastic bags swept in from the road on the breeze, the dark mask seething under a myriad of black snakes, smiling. So I figured that would give you a a pretty good um, glimpse of of what it's like. I mean, it is just 
she's another author who has really long sentences, lots of really intricate, ornate language. But yeah, the topics are very dark. So I don't know. I read that and I think about it a lot. It's such a good book. I haven't read it yet. Of course, I've seen a ton of of people, you know, a lot of people talking about it online. And mm-hmm. and I think her new one is just out. It is. Have, I was have just you got it say. yet? I haven't read it yet. I don't. I don't have it. I think it comes out in the next week or two as we're recording. I think it's somewhere in the early part of May, and it's called gotcha. Paradise. Um, but yeah, I can't wait to read that one as well. I've nice. heard really good things so far about it. So. Yeah, you should definitely pick that one up one of these days. All right, I will do so. Well, because because it was spoiled just a little bit, I'm going to give my first one to recommend. And it, I, I had to include it on this list because it's just one of those novels that means so much to me. And it is J.L. Carr's A Month in the Country. Have you read this one, Paul? I have. I love it. Yeah, you probably. I bet you've read every book on my list today. I'm anxious to see if that is the mm. case. Um, but this book is so special to me. It's a very uh, peaceful book. I, I remember, I probably read it a decade ago, maybe even a little longer, but it was like February and I don't, you know, like February's all that often. It was just kind of, you know, I was doing fine, but just needed something that make me feel a little bit of summertime in mm-hmm. my heart. And so I picked up A Month in the Country and man, did it do the trick. While at the same time, making me also, you know, feel that sense of, oh, you know, look at time, look at how it passes, look at, mm. but, but also look at these little beautiful moments and the, these, the warmth that can be provided. You know, it's about a man, Tom Birkin, he's a veteran of the, of World War One, and he, it's not too long before, or sorry, after the war, and he ends up going to a Yorkshire village of Ox Godby, um, and he's hired to restore a recently discovered medieval painting that's in the church there. And it's partially about that. So there's art in this book, which I always love, you know, it's him uncovering this, this painting and seeing what was, what was there and, and also trying to figure out why was it covered up? um, What was hidden in this painting? I I love that. But it's also about the people that he meets there, um, including someone else uh, uh, who is, it was having a, a rough time following the war. Um, a woman that he kind of, you know, might might form some kind of attachment to, maybe, you know, if, if times worked out in certain ways. But, you know, as these things happen, the summer ends, and, and it's just such a, a neat, tidy little book, a short book. And I, I am going to end with... Um, I, I am going to to talk about a quote that happens on the last page. I don't think it spoils anything, but it gives you a little bit of flavor of the tone um, because it is this author looking back several years later to this time that is, is long in the past. And he says, all this happened so long ago and I never returned, never wrote, never met anybody, or sorry, never met anyone who might have given me news of Ox, Ox Godby. So in memory, it stays as I left it a sealed room furnished by the past, airless, still, ink long dry on a put-down pen. But this was something I knew nothing of as I closed the gate and set off across the meadow. There's just that sense of, of that present moment, you know, back in the past of, uh, you know, have all this in front of me and these people are so important to me. And then years later realizing I've left, you know, that behind, but it's still a part of me. 
Um, it's it's just such a lovely, lovely little book. I was tempted to make it our assigned reading book just to have an opportunity to read it again right now. <laughs> yeah, I would not have minded if you had done that. But even whether, even though it doesn't sound like it will be the assigned book, I, I may actually... That's why I like some of these episodes. It reminds mm-hmm. me about some of these favorites that I would like to pull off the shelf and read soon. So do it I'm glad you mentioned that one. It's so beautiful. Yeah. My brother and I on the old iteration of the podcast did an episode on this book and mm-hmm. he didn't, he didn't get along with it. Like I did. I haven't talked to him since. I was um, about to say that. Yeah. And that was the last words I ever spoke. Yeah. I, I wonder how he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It, it's just one of those that means so much to me. And of course, people have different experiences. It's totally fine. But, but yeah, special short book. This is the NYRB Classics Edition, 135 pages thereabouts. Very, mm. very nice to sit down and, and enjoy on any time of year. But you know, like I say, in February, it hit the spot really nicely. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. And it's such an interesting book because I think people's reactions to it, every, everybody I've heard mostly, except for maybe your brother, no, really <laughs> like it. But it's it's an interesting mix of it's peaceful and calm, but there's that melancholy to it as well. Yeah. It's just such a perfect blend. And there's a turbulence that comes in because of the painting and because of what it seems to be showing about community. You know, there's always the potential for for not violence necessarily, but for something to go awry mm-hmm. as happened in that, in that painting that he's uncovering. So it's, you know, it's got that potency underneath it too. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that's a great choice. Well, you go you on to your next, next one. one? Mm-hmm. Yep. So my next one is Panine by Vladimir, Vladimir Nabokov. And, you know, of course, Nabokov is best known for Lolita, which is another of my favorite books, but a few years back, I wanted to kind of branch out and continue to explore, you know, more of his works. And so I read and loved Pale Fire and then came across this little book. Um, and so Panin focuses on the main character, Timothy Pavlovich Panin. Um, and I like the Nabokov writes that his name sounds like an explosion. I like that description. I'm not going to try to pronounce it like that because I might uh, distort the microphone, but um He's a very humane character. He's an immigrant who can, you know, barely speak English. And he's teaching at a college in the 1950s that I guess is kind of loosely based on either Cornell or Wellesley, which are two colleges where Nabokov himself taught. And he's just such an, a delightful character. And he's he's kind of just doing his best to figure out this, this new country and this new world. But often he's just completely befuddled by American life. So you kind of start out laughing at him and maybe, you know, he seems like kind of a comical character, but over the course of the book, one of the things I really like is how much you start to change your view of him. I was reading up a little bit about this and the author Gary Steingart says it starts as satire, but then becomes a quote book with an undercurrent of tragedy. So there's a lot to it. It's not just this kind of comical, you know, campus novel or anything like you might think at first. So um, I didn't know much about the history, but as I was looking at it for this episode, I guess it was published during the time when Lolita was banned. And it actually really helped kind of establish Nabokov's credentials as a writer. So it was one of the books that kind of helped him break through some of that turbulence that was caused by Lolita. So in an introduction to the book by David Lodge, he he writes that um, Panin, he describes him as Nabokov's funniest and most heartrending character. He struggles to maintain his dignity through a series of comic and sad misunderstandings, all the while falling victim both to subtle academic conspiracies and to the manipulations of a deliberately unreliable narrator. 
Initially an almost grotesquely comic figure, he gradually grows in stature by contrast with those who laugh at him. Whether taking the wrong train to deliver a lecture in a language he has not mastered, or throwing a faculty party during which he learns he's losing his job, the gently preposterous hero of this enchanting novel evokes the reader's deepest protective instinct. I just really liked that because that is how you feel. You feel very protective of him because you can tell that he is a good person who is doing his best. And even though he's often ridiculous, you know, you find yourself kind of reaching out and, and feeling bad for him. So, you know, it sounds like um, Nabokov had a soft spot for him as well. And it sounds like maybe he even kind of started to write him as a reaction to Humbert Humbert, you know, having spent so much time in such a dark and damaged mind it sounds like this character might've been kind of a reaction to that. So mm. um, as always with Nabokov, the, the writing is just beautiful. So I'll just read a couple of really quick passages here to give you a little taste of that. It says during the eight years Panin had taught at Waynedale college, he had changed his lodgings about every semester. The accumulation of consecutive rooms in his memory now resembled those displays of grouped elbow chairs on show and beds and lamps and ingle nooks, which ignoring all space-time distinctions, co-mingle in the soft light of a furniture store beyond which it snows and the dusk deepens and nobody really loves anybody. Mm. And then there's another part where it's, I just went to the dentist yesterday. So this one sounds a little familiar to me. He's uh, running his tongue along his teeth after a visit to the dentist. And as always, Nabokov can take something like that and just turn it into this amazing writing. So it says a warm flow of pain was gradually replacing the ice and wood of the anesthetic and his thawing, still half dead, abominably martyred mouth. After that, during a few days, he was in mourning for an intimate part of himself. It surprised him to realize how fond he'd been of his teeth. His tongue, a fat, sleek seal, used to, fl used to flop and slide so happily among the familiar rocks, checking the contours of a battered but still secure kingdom, plunging from cave to cove, climbing this jag, nuzzling that notch, finding a shred of sweet seaweed in the same old cleft. But now, not a landmark remained, and all there existed was a great dark wound, a terra incognita of gums, which dread and disgust forbade one to investigate. And when the plates were thrust in, it was like a poor fossil skull being fitted with the grinning jaws of a perfect stranger. <laughs> so, I don't know. Again, it's just his playfulness, his absolute mastery of what is this like his second or third language that he knew Nabokov? I mean, he writes better in his second or third language than most people could do in their native tongue. He's just amazing. So, you know, it's a wonderful little book. I would recommend it both either as an introduction to Nabokov for somebody who's never read him before, or if somebody like me had read Lolita or some of his other ones and wanted to continue to expand their understanding of Nabokov. This is a great one. So have you read that book? I haven't. Yeah, you're two for two of the books that I have not read, though I have read Lolita. And so maybe that's, maybe you're right. Maybe this is the next best step for me. I'm trying to remember yeah. if I have it. I have several of his books that I have not read. And I, I can't remember if this is one of them. If yeah. so, maybe uh, there's too much to read, but. I know. Well, soon. when we were talking about fall <laughs> books a while back, I mean, this one could, it, it's a campus novel. So we uh -huh. talked about that tie in between campus novels and that feeling of autumn. And I don't know that this book specifically evokes autumn for me, but if, if you do feel like reading any kind of a campus novel, this would be a good one too. Awesome. Well, let's see if I can become two of two for books you have read. Okay. Um, this is another one that came up in the listener feedback from Bonnie, who apparently recently finished it. This is William Maxwell's so long. See you tomorrow. Two read it, two. Paul. Yeah, two I two. have. Oh man. And do you love it? 
I love it. I oh. really do. He's Maxwell is, is another master. Yeah. And yeah. the short book, he's one we could have mentioned. Mm-hmm. He seems to specialize in that form. So this was the first one I ever read by him again, several years ago, and I've recommended it to a lot of people. And it's kind of fun afterwards to go up to someone and it doesn't always, again, it's not always this way, but it is nice when you go up to someone and say, Hey, did you like that book? And they go, I loved that book. Like they have a, they have hold that book in reverence at that point. Mm-hmm. I just remember that happening a few times with this one. Um, this is a story that's kind of a way for a narrator um, to atone for something that he did as a child that has made him feel guilty his entire life. And he has no idea how to do so. He does not have any ability to, you know, apologize to the person that he felt he slighted. And he doesn't even quite know how he could ever make up, make it up. Or even if the thing that he did would ever make that person, you know, feel bad, but he wasn't there for a friend when his friend needed him. And it wasn't even a very close friend. It was a, 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 a child, his same age, you know, as a young boy, whose father was a tenant farmer, and, and there's a murder. And this boy's father is involved, and after it, they don't do anything anymore. They don't, you know, and not only that, but years later, they kind of run into each other in the halls, and our narrator just keeps walking, you know, as as, as probably a mixture of things. You know, I don't want to talk to him. I don't know how to talk to him. He probably doesn't even remember me. It's been, it's now been several years, but that nevertheless sits with this narrator. So yeah, I guess here's another book about someone looking back on a moment in life that has stuck with him mm-hmm. and that he can't quite shake, but this is a way of, um, of dealing with it. And he, he expresses that from page one. I mean, it, this is not, well, this is not a spoiler for the book that this is what the narrator is writing this book to try to do to make amends. It says, I very much doubt that I would have remembered for more than 50 years the murder of a tenant farmer I never laid eyes on if, one, the murderer hadn't been the father of somebody I knew, and two, I hadn't later on done something I was ashamed of afterward. This memoir, if that's the right name for it, is a roundabout, futile way of making amends. I really like the, this is is futile, you know, this is not going to actually do it. But it's a book about that pain. It's a book about friendship. It's a book about, you know, again, the complexities of all of this. It's not so, there's no real way to make amends, as I was saying. And it's dark. It's dark at times. Mm -hmm. There's, There's a lot of guilt and a lot of deep childhood pain. And I mean, I think that's encapsulated in this line. Boys are, from time to time, found hanging from a rafter or killed by a shotgun believed to have gone off accidentally. The wonder is it happens so seldom. Mm. You know, it's just, it's a it's a dark little book, but also one filled with, um, I guess, a little bit of that hope and peace. It wouldn't be as meaningful to me if it didn't have that in, in it. Like, this attempt is heartfelt and and futile, but not at the same time. I mean, this is... It's 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 lovely. So William Maxwell's "So Long, See You Tomorrow" is my my next pick. Mm-hmm. Why don't choice. we do one more and then go on to our you know re- revisit our listener feedback? So why don't you take us to our next one? Sure. Our next one comes from an author that we have um, talked about fairly recently and fairly extensively, but I still think I I just wanted to mention it because I love it. And I, we might be continuing the trend. I don't think you've read this one yet. 
It's Wolf and White Band by John Darnielle. That's right. Uh, I haven't yet. Yeah. I'll try not to repeat myself because I know I've talked about him and this book a little bit, but um, the first time I read this book was one of those really formative reading experiences for me. And it actually was an audio experience. Um, we were taking a trip from Colorado to Arkansas and I was listening to the audiobook while I was driving and it was just happened to be, I didn't know anything about the book. And it was one of those serendipitous things where the areas that we were driving through, mostly through Kansas and that part of the country mirrored a lot of the setting that takes place in big parts of this book. So it was just one of those where it was very like, it was almost dreamlike and, and very surreal as I was going through it. Um, and as I've said before, when he narrates his own books, there's just something very hypnotic and mesmerizing about that as well. So um, so this book tells the story of a boy named Sean, and he was disfigured in a terrible incident when he was a teenager. And we don't know, the narrative is such that we don't, we learn as the novel goes along more and more about it. But as it starts out, that's kind of all we know about it. But because of this, he now lives a fairly uh, reclusive life, and he manages this text-based role-playing game through the mail. So he will write out prompts, and he will mail them, physical mail them, out to different people across the country. They will give their responses. So it's this very interesting slow-motion kind of role-playing game. The name of the game is Trace Italian. And in the game, players are making their way across this kind of post-apocalyptic middle America that's been devastated and is filled with radiation and all these things. And they're searching for a sanctuary. This is, I guess it's like a castle called Trace Italian. It's a fortress, um, but no one ever really makes it that far. Um, so the, the narrative style of this is very interesting. It's one of those, like I said, it starts out and you know some things, but then it's like a puzzle, like maybe some of his other books where you pick up on things throughout the different parts of, of the game. So I like this section where he's, this is the narrator talking about him creating these different moves for the game. And he says, every move I send out begins with the same word, you. When I first wrote most of them, I had in mind only a single player. And of course he looked almost exactly like me, not me as I am now, but as I was before the accident, young and fresh and frightened and in need of refuge from the world. I was building myself a home on an imaginary planet. I hadn't considered then how big the world was, how many people lived there, how different their lives were from mine, the infinite number of planets spinning in space. So that gives you a little taste of, of his writing. But um, in addition to his own personal tragedy, which we come to learn more and more about, we also learn that there has been another incident involving the game and two of the people who he was mailing back and forth these moves. And there was another tragedy there. So there's kind of multiple mysteries or tragedies that are that are working and like i said the book structure is really interesting where it mixes in plot with it's very non-linear but then it also slowly unspools some of the memories around those two major events in the book so it kind of dances back and forth um but i'll just read one more little passage here that this is him and when he's recovering from that incident and it just again gives you a really good taste of his writing it says nurses and doctors come and go and family it's like they're visiting a person at his lonely outpost on the space station miles above the earth. How do they get there? Just coming in through the door like that? In the brief moment between infinite communion with the ceiling and the beginning of whatever conversation they've come to strike up, it seems like the deepest mystery in the world. And then they break the spell, and the world contracts, palpably shifts from one reality into a new and much more unpleasant one, in which there's pain and suffering, and people who, when they are hurt, stay hurt for a long time or sometimes forever, 
if there is such a thing as forever. Forever is a question you start asking when you look at the ceiling. It becomes a word you hear in the same way that people who associate sound with color might hear a flat sky blue, the open shy through which forgotten satellites travel forever. So again, I don't know how much of it is that first experience making such a huge impression, but I know that he has a lot of fans and I know that you've enjoyed, you know, Devil House that you read by him. So mm-hmm. I know he's a, he's a well-liked author and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. And for me, this book in particular holds a very special spot. So, well, and I thought Devil House was so awesome that I'm looking forward to going back and rereading, not rereading, reading his other ones. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be curious to hear what you think. Cause Universal Harvester is his other of the main big three ones and, and all three I've loved, but like I said, Wolf and White Van holds a special spot for me. Nice. All right. So yeah, three for three books I have not read. All right. And I'm, I'm, I'm betting three for three books you have read. Here's my third one. Muriel Sparks, The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. Our streak continues, yep. Nice, nice. That's okay with me. Uh, The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. It's a book that I read the first time in 2009. I can see from my blog. That's one of the things I love about having the blog. Um, And I loved this story, even though I didn't quite... I've been grappling with it for years, and I've loved the film since. My wife and I have talked about it quite a bit. And I still don't necessarily have my thumb on everything, but I I love the complexity of it. I love what's going on here. It concerns a schoolmistress named Miss Jean Brody, who teaches at a girls' private school and somehow, you know, seems to have these girls as the Brody set, you know, like girls that she selects that that are her protégés almost, and that they're looking up to her as she's in her prime of life right now. And yet there's a darkness to it. I When I first picked it up, I remember thinking, okay, are we reading, you know, uh, th- like one of these books about a teacher who's just such a great positive influence for their kids? You know, I can really touch these kids' lives, you know. Dead Poet uh, Society or something. Yeah, Dead Poet Society, any number of of books where the teacher just helps these students get out of the doldrums of, you know, I'm on my way to become a lawyer, right. <laughs> you know, but helps them suck up the, the marrow of life, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. No, Mm-mm. this shows the dangers of such things of having a teacher who is, you know, too much of a, of a potential, almost a, I don't know, a, 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 too, too much of a, a, an authoritative figure in these girls' life, and that it's just not a good thing. But the thing that I love about it is it's not so moralistic even that way. The girls kind of figure it out as they go along and start biting back. It's just this mess. (laughs) It's messy. Mm -hmm. And it was the first Muriel Spark book I ever read, and I realized as I've read a lot more, this is what she likes to do. She likes to have people kind of biting back and forth and show that complexity. And it's, it's just so interesting to me. I'll read just a little bit here from, from, the first, from the first page. After introducing some of the girls, it says, These girls formed the Brody set. That was what they had been called even before the headmistress had given them the name, in scorn, when they had moved from the junior to the senior school at the age of 12. At that time, they had been immediately recognizable as Miss Brody's pupils being vastly informed on a lot of subjects irrelevant to the authorized curriculum 
as the headmistress said, and useless to the school as a school. These girls were discovered to have heard of the Buckmanites and Mussolini, the Italian Renaissance painters, the advantages of, to the skin of cleansing cream and witch hazel over honest soap and water, and the word menarche, the interior decoration of the London house of the author of Winnie the Pooh had been described to them, as had the love lives of Charlotte Bronte and of Miss Brodie herself. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's such a that's a fun way to do it. And again, you're like, oh, look, she's opening up their eyes. And then you start realizing to like Mussolini. And right. it is a book about fascism to an extent. It's such a lovely, short, bitter, biting, weird book. And again, I, I do love the movie. It's Maggie Smith plays um, Gene Brody. Uh, boy, Pamela Franklin plays one of the, the main characters. And I think she does a great job too. She's the little girl in, and Clay, Jack Clayton's The Innocence. And this is just a few years later when she mm-hmm. plays in The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. It's a great movie, but a fantastic, fantastic book, too. Yeah, so. that's a great choice. I was like you. I went into it knowing I must have had some preconceived ideas because it completely turned them on their heads. And it was very <laughs> different than what I expected. Um, but it's a good example of one of those where I like that you use the word messy because we talked about how that can be one of the strengths of a big book. But it doesn't mean you can't do that in a small book. They they don't have to all be cut and dry. There's a lot yeah. of complexity that goes on there. So that's a great choice. Yeah. And have you read a lot more Spark? Do you, have you continued on or is this? I have. I think the only other one I've read is Driver's Seat. Oh, yeah. That's a which, really ooh, dark one. Another one that's just <laughs> propulsive yeah. and, and oh, man, yeah. No, I, I need to keep. She's one of those that I, I think those are the only two I own, but I need to get some more because talk about just an amazing writer. Yeah, she's fantastic. I, I try to read a couple of her books every year or two just to keep on going. And every time I'm, I, I love the control she has on me and I'm like, oh man, she must have been absolutely miserable to, to, to know. <laughs> right. She just seems so aware of your faults and failings and so willing to point them out. And right. I just, I think, man, Muriel Spark, I wonder how it was, you know, to be your friend, but, but yes. I'm glad I, I'm glad I can be your reader. <laughs> I know we talked about like David Sedaris or Jane Austen, where people around them, family and friends would be kind of nervous or like wondering when they get really quiet and they're watching you do something like, Oh God, am I going to end up in a book? Imagine Muriel Spark was probably like that as well. <laughs> she probably told you to your face. I can imagine. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> All right, well, let's get back to some listener feedback. And during this break, we've got a little game as well that is going to result in a giveaway. So I'm excited about that. But yeah. first, let's let's hear some more short book recommendations from, okay. from folks. Well, I'll start with one that we just got this morning. Um, Jackie got in under the wire. So our friend Jackie writes, Hi, Trevor and Paul. I might be too late with my suggestion of a favorite short book, but if not, here we go. I would love to recommend The Artificial Silk Girl by Ermgard Kuhn translated by Kathy Von Ankum. All of Kuhn's books are excellent and short, but this is my particular favorite from the three or four I've read so far. It's evocative. It's an evocative portrait of Weimar-era Berlin, conveyed by a narrator with a striking tone of voice, a little like Christopher Isherwood's Goodbye to Berlin, crossed with the early novellas by Jean Rhys. A beautifully written book and a great introduction to a highly distinctive writer. I can't recommend it highly enough. Keep up the great work with the podcast. 
There's a lovely dynamic between the two of you, very comfortable and natural, which makes the show a real pleasure to listen to. All the best, Jackie. Well, thank you so much, Jackie. That's very kind. And that's a great recommendation too. Uh, I, I have not heard of that first one and I would like to check it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a couple more short ones. So the first one here comes from Weird Book Club on Twitter. It's pretty much anything by Caesar Ira would fit the build. I endorse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but ghosts and the divorce are personal favorites. Same with Italo Calvino, Invisible Cities and the Cloven Viscount. And then this next one is from, I believe I'm going to say this right, Jeroen, J-E-R-O-E-N. says, Pierre Michon's Small Lives is a very short gem. At first, you were drawn in by the unique style. You think you're reading a mere collection of short stories until halfway through the book when you realize the composition of the novel is as complex as that of the sentences. The next one is from Neil Mackenzie. The Lost Honor of Katerina Bloom by Heinrich Boll. Set in the 1970s, the novel describes how the tabloid press destroys the life of a young woman who had an accidental encounter with someone who was supposedly a terrorist. The next one is from Daniel Brennan. Says Nagasaki by Eric Fay blew me away. Engineered thoughtfulness post-reading, tension, mystery, and wonder whilst reading. A perfect short book. And then another one from Juliana Aldos, The Summer Book by Tova Janssen. It's a wonderful story about a young girl and her grandmother staying on a Finnish island for the summer. So as always, so many great books that I'm adding to my list, some of which I've already read and I want to reread, and some of those I had never even heard of, but they sound fascinating. So, Well, and one thing I'm going to do here, Paul, if you're okay with it, um, we, we got, I don't even know how many responses you got on Twitter, but it, I think in the show notes, let's put a link to your tweet so people can go and see all of them because we're yeah. just not going to be able to list them all. And some of them were short, just recommending just a, a book. And we want to make sure that folks get the access to that. But I'm going to read a couple here. Um, you know, I'm going to skip over a few that recommend books we've already talked about. Um, not for any other reason than that we've already talked about them and want to keep on moving here. But I'm going to go down to Maria Snyder. It says, Theodore Storms, the writer on the white horse. Ghost story is actually fable about enemies of reason. And then she also recommends Heinrich von Kleist's The Earthquake in Chile, Sea Collapse, Society Collapse, and Gerhard Hauptmann's Lineman Thief, or sorry, Lineman Thiel, Machines Spread Madness. Um, I haven't read any of those, but they all sound, sound interesting. I like these short, punchy descriptions, too. <laughs> I know. These people should write cover copy. They're, they're good. <laughs> and Tony Messenger. Love and Gymnastics by Edmondo de Amicus uh, weighs in at 130 pages, translated by David Chapman, uh, referred by Unwise Trousers, or our good friend James. Uh, Mr. Silzani is consumed by love for Miss Pedani, an Amazonian gymnast, uh, lesbian in in parentheses. I don't know what all this means, by the way. This sounds crazy. Uh, Combines the rigors of physical discipline with the madness of persistence. (laughs) And then from Bart, Girl Meets Boy by Ali Smith. Only she can write opening sentences like, let me tell you about when I was a girl, our grandfather says. <laughs> <laughs> the Maintenance of Headway by Magnus Mills, my favorite bus driving novelist. People aren't important. Only bus movements are. <laughs> oh, sounds good. Well, I'll keep us moving. We have one from Stu, Stones in a Landslide by Maria Barbal. 
one girl's life told from childhood to adulthood in a small village in Spain, one of many great novellas from Perrine Press, which is another one of those publishers we were talking about. And then we got another one from Jerry Faust. A wonderful short novel is Found Audio by N.J. Campbell. It's a hallucinatory cassette transcription, an analysis, and more that stretches from Alaska to the swamps of the southern U.S. And then a couple more. Kim says, Kim McNeil says, I would recommend The Dry Heart by Natalia Ginsberg for a dark look at a marriage. Quote, I shot him between the eyes. Balanced out by Tova Janssen's Fair Play, a beautiful portrait of an artistic partnership. Also, all the Fleurs Yagi. Did I say that name right? As far as I know. Okay. <laughs> and then the last one from me is from Rad's Pandit. Says, In a Strange Room by Damon Galgut, quiet, there reflective novel on travel and relationships. She also mentions The Shawl by Cynthia Ozick, haunting, devastating read on the Holocaust. The Ice Palace by Tarje Vesas, dreamlike book on loss, friendship, and nature. And then The Blue Fox by Sean, beautiful fable, part mystery, part fairy tale. And then she mentions The Juniper Tree by Barbara Comins, delicious, clever take on the Brother Grim, Brother's Grim fairy tale. And Dead Girls by Selva Amada, searing book on gender violence. So, boy, lots of great recommendations there, too. Yeah, I've read a few of them, and others sound really interesting. Yeah. Um, Rebecca Hussey says, Deborah Levy's autobiographical trilogy, Things I Don't Want to Know, The Cost of Living, and Real Estate. Each one is short, but so full of emotion, beauty, and wisdom. How does she pack her whole life, plus a feminist manifesto, into such short books? (laughs) And this one's from John is tired of stupid people. <laughs> John, uh, eighty-four Charing Cross Road, which I heard a lot of people bring up by Helen Hanth, a great short book, a great book about books, and a great comfort read. Okay, okay, clearly we, you know, I haven't read this one. Have you read it? I've read it. It's all of those things. It's why have you never brought it up in those other episodes, Paul? It's a good I question. Think that's what we're wondering here. <laughs> I know. I don't know. I'm clearly dropping the ball here. All right. Well, I'll have to I'll have to grab that one. Grant says, "In re- I recently read Stranger to the Moon by Evelio Rosero, who is, or, which is already a favorite and reminded me of another, The Boy Who Stole Attila's Horse by Ivan Ripila. Both are fables of injustice. Uh, Christopher says, B.S. Johnson, Christy Mallory's own double entry. It's the literary equivalent of a classic punk rock single, a short, concentrated blast of focused nihilistic rage, taking you from keying the facade of an office block to mass murder in a hundred pages or so, whilst obliterating the fourth wall and generally roughing up the form of the novel while it's, while it's at it. Absolutely required reading. Wow. <laughs> I've read, um, I've read the unfortunates by BS Johnson and I have a copy of this one, but I haven't read this one yet. So yeah, I've read right. the unfortunates as well, but I, I have not read anything else by him. That one sounds very intriguing. Natalie Hamilton, uh, Luis Fernando Verissimo's The Club of Angels, funny, murderous, gluttonous satire of Brazilian society, and then another recommendation for Vivian Gornick, uh, Vivian Gornick's memoir, The Old Woman in the City, Sassy, New York City. Juan Rulfo's Pedro Paramo, Temporal Shifts and Hauntings, and then last, Alessandro Barico's Mr. Gwyn, Clear, Quiet, and Abyssal. Mm. All right. Well, thanks everybody for your feedback. Again, there's actually a lot more <laughs> that we yeah. we didn't get to. So refer you to Paul's uh, Twitter uh, question 
and yeah. I would recommend you to spend more. some time with that digging through because even within like click on all the different ones and look at people's comments under other recommendations too, because there are a lot of great recommendations inside of recommendations and great conversations that took place. So thanks everyone for chiming in both on Twitter and for sending in your choices. So many great ones. All right, Paul, we've been wanting to figure out a way to do more giveaways that aren't just focused on our publisher episodes. I mean, those are like the, you know, grand, you know, big giveaways, mm-hmm. but, w- but we've got books that we want to give away. And I have a fresh copy of the NYRB classics, Mrs. Papalfrey at the Claremont that I want to give away this week nice. for our short books episode. You know, it's a fairly short one. Um, never been opened. I have another copy that I did read and then I've got this one. So I want to give it to a listener. I'll, I'll be honest and say that when I've gone to look at international shipping, it's really expensive to ship internationally, but I do want to keep that open at this time, but we may have to revisit that in the future. I think it was like $30 to to send this book. So maybe if you wait in your international, I'll figure out another way to get, get it to you (laughs) or something, you know, maybe I'll just buy a ticket and come visit because it seems you know almost as good um at least it'll be be nice there but i am going to keep this open for everybody um but here's the way we're going to do it today we're talking about short books and there is a writer who i think has written um you know dozens and dozens of short uh books that we could have put on this list and i'm not going to tell you who it is because i'm going to play a segment from uh, the film adaptation of one of his uh, greatest little novellas. And it's a great film as well. And I want you to send in uh, to me an email to mooksandgripes at gmail.com. We'll have that in the show notes. But I want you to send me in an email that tells me the name of the author and of the book. And I guess, you know, bonus points for sending in the name of the film, the director, and, you know, giving me some thoughts if you have or have not read it. I love, I love hearing a little bit about it. You don't have to do that to enter. Um, enough is to give me the author and the book, but you know, I, I, I like the extra just for my, my own selfish reasons. Right. here. So Paul, I did preview this with you a little bit. Is this a, a story, a book that you have read? It's actually not. No, oh, I could have picked it on my list then and would have had one you didn't read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's not one that's on our lists then. I know that. And it is a special one, a very strange um, little little book. And here is the, the old, the, well, I don't know if it's the old trailer or not, but here is a trailer that you can find of the film. By the time you read this letter, I may be dead. I have so much to tell you. And perhaps very little time. Will I ever send it? I don't know. I must find strength to write now before it's too late. And as I write, it may become clear that what happened to us had its own reason beyond our poor understanding. If this reaches you, you will know how I became yours when you didn't know who I was. I've seen you somewhere, I know. I followed you upstairs and watched you in your box. Is there any place we could have met that I might have seen you at one of my concerts? It must have been some time ago. If this letter reaches you, believe this. 
that I love you now as I've always loved you. My life can be measured by the moments I've had with you. If only you could have shared those moments. listeners there's your homework if you have seen the film and know what we're talking about know the book and the author go ahead and send me an entry if you haven't well go do some homework you know see if you can figure it out and uh, better yet uh read the read the the book or, or watch the show that this is that this is referring to um but today is may 5th that we're releasing this episode to the general audience our next episode is going to come out on may 19th but we will be recording on May 14th. So you have a little bit more than a week to get your entries in. I'm going to call it for the early morning, Saturday, May 14th. We need to have your your entry into my inbox. And uh, that's when we'll record our next episode. And that's when, when we'd like to, to draw a winner. So good luck, everybody. Yeah, good luck. Let's get back to our recommendations. We each have two more. Why don't you go ahead, Paul? All right. Well, my next one is another one of my all-time favorites. It's Department of Speculation by Jenny Ophel. Keep Our Street Going. Have you read that one? No, I have read this one, and I do think it's great. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, like I said, this is another one of my favorite books. It was named one of the 10 best books of 2014 by the New York Times Book Review, so it's definitely you know received some accolades and very well-deserved, in my opinion. Um, I like this quote from Jenny Ophel. She says, I've always liked compressed and fragmentary forms. I trace it back to my mind being blown by John Berryman when I was 19. And this is definitely another one of those fragmentary novels that I seem to be drawn to lately. It reminds me a lot of a book I talked about in our last episode, Kate Zambrino's Drifts. It's told in these fragments and it kind of, you know, it charts the course of a woman's life who lives in Brooklyn and she's a writer so, you know, she falls in love, she gets married, and she ends up having a child. I don't feel like any of that is a, is a major spoiler here. Um, I came across Roxanne Gay wrote in the New York Times this really good review where she says, quote, seemingly significant information is doled out in inscrutable doses. Each fragment is satisfying or not and exists unto itself, but also clearly as part of something bigger. And I really liked that because this is definitely one of those, I mean, on any given page, you know, it's broken up into these little paragraphs and some of them are a few lines long. Some of them might go as long as a page, but sometimes there's some connections you can piece together, you know, from paragraph to paragraph, but often there's not, there's little pieces of trivia or just other things, but I really enjoy kind of the work that is required. And I say work, it's, it's very easy book to read and it's actually very funny, but I just mean the idea of kind of piecing together how all of this connects, like she said. So, um, yeah, it's just a wonderful book. It's, it's tiny. It'll take you, you could, you could read it in one sitting very easily. Uh, looks like it's, you know, like not even 170 pages. And like I said, a lot of that's broken up into little readable sections. So I'll just read a couple of, of little bits here and, and She's very f- a funny writer, but there's also a lot of, of melancholy in there as well. So here's one. She says, how had she become one of those people who wear yoga pants all day? She used to make fun of those people with their happiness maps and their gratitude journals and their bags made out of recycled tire treads. 
but now it seems possible that the truth about getting older is that there are fewer and fewer things to make fun of until finally there's nothing you are sure you will never be. <laughs> so I really like that. Speaking of midlife crisis, that book that you read at the very beginning, I think there might be a little bit of a connection there. Um, and then she also kind of coined that term that we hear a lot now, art monster. Um, and it's that whole, there's a lot in this book about the idea of parenthood and leading your life while still feeling the passion to create art. Like I said, there's a lot of connections to drifts that I read. So here's this quote. She says, my plan was to never get married. I was going to be an art monster instead. Women almost never become art monsters because art monsters only concern themselves with art, never mundane things. Nabokov didn't even fold his own umbrella. Vera licked his stamps for him. So I like that too. It, it looks at that whole idea of, of who can create art and how women and mothers in particular often have all these other expectations that society puts onto them or even within their relationship where it creates this extra tension and makes it even harder for them to do. So, you know, that gives you a little bit of an example of, of some of the things going on. And then I'll just read one more little short bit that ties in both the humor, but also kind of the sadness and melancholy of her writing. And she says, a bold plan was what my friend, the philosopher said, but on my 29th birthday, I turned my book in. If I do not greatly delude myself, I went to a party and drank myself sick. Are animals lonely? Other animals, I mean. Not long after that, an ex-boyfriend appeared on my doorstep. He seemed to have come all the way from San Francisco just to have coffee. On the way to the diner, he apologized for never really loving me. He hoped to make amends. Wait, I said, are you doing the steps? So just in that little glimpse, you get how she kind of jumps around, but you start to to notice, you know, there's some through lines. And, and like I said, she's, she's very funny. I had the fortunate opportunity to meet her one time at a book signing here in Denver. Um, and she spent probably two or three minutes just chatting with me. And she just seems like a really lovely, funny person. And it definitely comes through in her writing. So um, I assume I don't want to put pressure on you. Did you, you liked that one you said too? Yeah, I really, I really liked that one. And I'd really like all of her work that I've read, including her picture book. What's yeah. it called? Is it Sparky? Something. Sparky the Sloth. Sparky the Sloth. I thought that mm-hmm. was a fantastic picture book. Um, d- deep and, and uh, powerful, really humane. Yeah. I liked it a lot. I do too. And and I read her more recent one called Weather and it has some similarities to Department of Speculation, but definitely goes in some new directions as well. It's got a darkness to it about the climate and other things that are going on politically that is really interesting. And then I know she had an earlier book, which I, I own. I think it's called Last Offerings. Don't quote me on that. I That might be right though. And that's one I have not yet read, but I, I look forward to reading that and also just, you know, I'm awaiting whatever comes out from her next because I think she's one of the more fascinating writers that are going right now. All right. Well, you, I broke my trend of not reading what you're recommending with, with that last one, but I think I'm still going to be picking books that you have read. And so okay. my next one is Edith Wharton's Ethan Frome. I read it, but it was so long ago that it's almost as if I hadn't read it. How does that, does that count? <laughs> that does count still. I, think I don't remember very much it. about it. I'm going to yeah. count it for, for my purposes. Okay. <laughs> I, I think this is a really beautifully written, dark um, book. And as I'm putting these books out there, I'm like, man, people, you know, 
psychoanalysts could really have a heyday with these episodes and figuring out who we are really on the surface. (laughs) But I love how this begins. I had the story bit by bit from various people and, as generally happens in such cases, each time it was a different story. So there's how uh, Wharton begins it. Now, I will tell you, when I first started reading Edith Wharton, I thought, okay, this is going to be a bit of a chore. I have never felt that way with her books. They are so wonderfully written. So she is just a great storyteller, um, but has so much fun in her writings. They're, they're just wonderful. Um, and here's how it goes on to kind of introduce us to the, to the main subject. It says, if you know Starkfield, Massachusetts, you know the post office. If you know the post office, you must have seen Ethan Frome drive up to it, drop the reins on his hollow-backed bay, and drag himself across the brick pavement to the white colonnade. And you must have asked who he was. There's something about this character, you know, that intrigues this person who is coming up on Ethan Frome. I think Ethan Frome is in his 50s at the time the narrator first meets him. And this is a, kind of a tragic story but fill fill in the blanks, you know, try and figure out what's going on here. And it goes in ways that I never anticipated. I remember as I was reading it, it's about a hundred pages in the Penguin Classics edition, just trying to figure out where where is this going? How's it going to end? You know, it doesn't end well because you're seeing these characters later on in life and they're certainly not happy, but I guess it's more and more shocking as, as it goes on. And we, we get more and more of this story that's at times romantic and definitely, definitely dark. I would say that, um, you know, she's being critical uh, and exploring this town of Starkfield. It's kind of frozen. It's very wintry throughout this whole book. You know, you might remember a sled scene or at least mm-hmm. have an impression of a sled scene. Even I think that's like the time. only thing I remember about that book actually <laughs> is just some kind of vague. Yeah. 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 That, uh, that is, the way this book goes and I love it. I, I was tempted to leave it off just cause I thought, Oh, you know, this is a, an old book. I want to maybe, maybe look at books that maybe not everybody read in school or whatever, but I couldn't, mm-hmm. I love Ethan Frome so much. Yeah. Now that makes me want to reread it. And I need to, it's, I went through a phase where I read several of her books in a row. I don't know how long ago it's been, maybe seven or eight years or maybe even longer than that. And I do want to revisit her cause I remember loving everything of hers that I did read. Well, and this is a great way to dip your toe back in and, and remember Ethan Frome, but also, you know, not start with one of her five, 600 page books. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. You ready for my last one? I'm ready. All right. I'm pretty sure this is another one. Actually, I know this is one that you've read. Um, Train well, I can, I can, I, as you can say, I can kind of see, and I'm yeah. not even seeing the cover, but I just saw like a vague, you know, as you've slipped it past the camera and I knew what it was immediately. So yeah, yeah. everybody who follows me on Twitter is probably like rolling their eyes like, Oh, he's going to talk about train dreams again, but yeah. Train dreams by Dennis Johnson. I mean, I could not talk about short books without including this one. I love this book so much. Um, When I talked about how a small book can be perfect. I think this is a perfect book. I, I read it the first time and really liked it. And then I reread it several years later. And for whatever reason, the second time, it just absolutely floored me. Um, so, you know, he's probably best known for his short story collection, Jesus's Son, which is incredible. And then he also wrote a really long book that won the National Book Award for Fiction called Tree of Smoke, which is all about Vietnam. 
So he was the one that I was thinking of when I was talking about how some mm. authors mm-hmm. are able to jump around and write excellent books in all kinds of different forms, which is pretty amazing. Um, I found a review of this book by Anthony Doerr, and he called it a tender, lonesome, and riveting story, an American epic writ small. And I really liked that, the whole idea about an epic writ small. Um, in fact, one of our listeners, I saved this because somebody um, on Twitter over here reading says, I'll suggest Train Dreams by Dennis Johnson, beautiful and sad, an epic in miniature, as someone smarter than me described it. So yeah, that epic word keeps coming up because this is a book that's you know barely over 100 pages. And when you finish, you feel like you have lived decades and seen America transform, you know, through all kinds of technologies and, and other things. And you've been with this person, um, Robert Grainier through his entire life. And you feel like you've gone through all of his losses and different things with him as well. Um, so yeah, it follows his life. His name is Robert Grainier. He's an American railroad laborer. He's born in 1886 and he dies in 1968. And that's not a spoiler. That's just showing the span of his life that is covered in this tiny little book. And it's amazing. Those 82 years, like I said, you feel like you have lived a good portion of them with, with Robert. Um, so the cover copy describes him as an ordinary man in extraordinary times. Buffeted by loss, he struggles to make sense sense of this strange new world. And that's what I really like about this is, is sometimes right now we feel like we're going through all these epic things, historically, politically, all the technology that's changing around us. But I like how this shows that in a whole different lens of, you know, he starts out working as a railroad laborer, and then he kind of watches America transform around him over the over the decades. So there's some really good writing in here as well. I'll just read a couple of, of short examples. Um, this is talking, this is near the beginning where he's working as a laborer, and it says, cut off from anything else that might trouble them, the gang, numbering sometimes more than 40 and never fewer than 35 men, fought the forest from sunrise until supper time felling and bucking the giant spruce into pieces of a barely manageable size, accomplishing labors. Granier sometimes thought tatamount to the pyramids, changing the face of the mountainsides, talking little, shouting their communications, living with the sticky feel of pitch in their beards, sweat sweat washing the dust off their long johns and caking it in the creases of their necks and joints, the odor of pitch so thick it abraded their throats and stung their eyes and even overlaid the stink of beasts and manure. So he's just very good at writing about landscape, but also the way that people were starting to devastate and transform the landscape, you know, for the sake of quote unquote progress. And this person was involved, but in some ways he was just kind of a cog in the wheel as well. Um, And then just one more quick part. This is later in the book. It says, 10 days later, when the Spokane International was running again, Grainier rode it up into Creston, British Columbia, and back south again the evening of the same day through the valley that had been his home. This is after a campfire, uh, not a campfire, a forest fire. The blaze had climbed to the ridges either side of the valley and stalled halfway down the other side of the mountains, according to the reports Grainier had listened to intently. It had gutted the valley along its entire length, like a campfire in a ditch. All his life, Robert Grainier would remember vividly the burned valley at sundown, the most dreamlike business he'd ever witnessed waking the brilliant pastels of the last light overhead, some clouds high and white catching daylight from beyond the valley, others ribbed and gray and pink, the lowest of them, rubbing the peaks of Boussard and Queen Mountains, and beneath this wondrous sky the black valley, utterly still, the train moving through it, making a great noise, 
but uh, but unable to wake this dead world. So I'll just leave it at that. Um, I don't want to give away too much because it's such a short book and so much is contained. Mm-hmm. I feel like almost anything you say will will be a spoiler in some ways, but at the same time, it's not just about plot and not even primarily about plot. It's just a wonderful evocation of that time in America and the life of this, this man. So, Oh man, it's one of my very favorite books ever. I think back on it fondly. And if I remember right, that was one of those stupid years where the Pulitzer committee selected it. And I think Karen Russell's Swamplandia and David Foster Wallace's the pale King is finalist for the Pulitzer. And then the, the Pulitzer committee, like the head folks are supposed to choose one of those three books to win and chose none of them. Yep. I, I mean, know. I don't understand. It, I, there were like, I didn't really like Karen Russell's Swamplandia. I didn't. Either. David Foster Wallace had died and the pale King wasn't really completed. And, and to be fair, um, train dreams was published like several years before in the Paris review. Right. So I maybe get that they were like, well, none of the, but if I don't know, it certainly could have gone to train dreams in my mind. That would have been a worthy Pulitzer. Oh, winner. Absolutely. When you think about what, what I think the Pulitzer represents, I mean, this is, you know, could be like handpicked for mm-hmm. exactly what that's supposed to exemplify. But like you said, I'm sure there were other circumstances going on, but as far as just a book that is a little epic of America, I think it's a perfect choice. Yeah. Just an interesting thing. It's like a slap in the face though. Like, Oh, here are the three. We're not, we actually don't think any of them are worthy. Like it's one thing <laughs> if you are a finalist and another book wins, when you're a finalist and they choose not to give any award, then it's like, oh, that's really damning. Actually. I know, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, of, of those three, I have not read Pale Fire. Um, but the Pale yeah, King. If you were going to pick one of those three, I would, I would pick this one. Yeah. The Pale King. You're still on Nepokov uh, in your mind. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Paul. Well, let's get on to my last one. Okay. I, again, I think I'll go five for five here. If not, then shame on you. <laughs> yeah. I saw I saw a little peek of your cover too, and so let me just say, yeah, you, you know we're what's safe. coming. Adolfo Bioy Casardes's The Invention of Morel. Um, oh man, I I love this book, and the one that I'm looking at is the the NYRB Classics Edition, uh, tr- uh, translated by Ruth L. C. Sims, uh, which she translated back in the '60s. But I love this this book because it, it has a cover that has a, a steel of Louise Brooke, the you know, Hollywood star from the silent era on, on the front. And it's amazing how that ties into this story. It's so, it's such a good story. It's like a science fiction story, but it's so lonely. It's so thoughtful. It's a hundred and, you know, hundred pages, basically almost exactly 103 pages. And just, I, I love everything about it. It's it's one of those that can just carry you through a whole afternoon, as many of these have been. Um, I'm going to read the the first paragraph because, like train dreams, too much more could really spoil the book. Right. <laughs> it says, today on this island, a miracle happened. Summer came ahead of time. I moved my bed out by the swimming pool, but then, because it was impossible to sleep, I stayed in the water for a long time. The heat was so intense that after I had been out of the pool for only two or three minutes, I was already bathed in perspiration again. As day was breaking, I awoke to the sound of a phonograph record. Afraid to go back to the museum to get my things, I ran away down through the ravine. Now I'm in the lowlands, 
at the southern part of the island, where the aquatic plants grow, where mosquitoes torment me, where I find myself waist-deep in dirty streams of seawater, and, what is worse, I realized that there was no need to run away at all. Those people did not come here on my account. I believe they did not even see me. But here I am, without provisions, trapped in the smallest, least habitable part of the island, the marshes that the sea floods once each week. Just a lot of mystery that builds up in this in this paragraph. You know, why is this man on this island to begin with? Um, what's up with his fear of the museum? Um, who are these people? Why is he afraid of people finding him? You know, what 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 is going on and what's going on with this island? And it just continues to to go through this. A lot of what we're listening or what, what comes up in that first paragraph plays a big role in the rest of the book. Um, but it's such a, it's such a lonely book. I'm going to read just another part kind of without context, just to give a sense of this. It says, I dreamed of Faustine. The dream was very sad, very touching. We were saying goodbye. They were coming to get her. The ship was about to leave. Then we were alone, saying a romantic farewell. I cried during the dream and then woke up feeling miserable and desperate because Faustine was not there. My only consolation was that we had not concealed our love. I was afraid that Faustine had gone away while I was sleeping. I got up and looked around. The ship was gone. My sadness was profound. It made me decide to kill myself. Hmm. It's one of these books that even when you figure out what is going on, it's not about that. It's almost incidental to something much deeper that Biocasardes is is working on. Uh, I think a lot of lesser books would have stopped at the clever premise of the book. But he uses that to dig a lot deeper into these really interesting an intelligent examination of love and lust and loneliness and kind of the ambiguities of immortality and yeah, filmmaking and, and the like plays a, a role in the, in the novel. It's just, I love it. I'm again, if you had not read it, I would have quickly made it my assigned reading, but yeah. <laughs> we'll do something else. <laughs> no, I mean, it's another one though, even though I have read it, just hearing you talk about it again and realizing how long mm-hmm. it's been since I've read it, I may end up reading it again. Have you read it multiple times? I would assume you probably have. I've read it twice, but it's been quite a while. I wouldn't mind yeah. reading it again, too. So. Yeah. No, that's another great choice. Oh, so many good ones out there. All right. Well, Paul, we are on to assigned reading. So here in a, in a couple of episodes, um, as, as I mentioned earlier, it, it is this is coming out on, on May 5th. On May 19th, we'll have another episode where where we will be talking about um, something else, but also doing the giveaway announcement. But on June 2nd, we will be releasing our episode about the two books where, you know, I don't even know what you've brought up, but about our two assigned reading short books and listeners, you are welcome to join us. Um, yeah. I'm a little bit nervous. I, I, I'm excited to, to see what you picked, excited for the reads and excited for that episode where we can talk about these two books, but do you, want, do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? Oh, why don't you go first this time since I've been leading? All right. So the book that I've chosen is one from Archipelago, um, Archipelago Books. <laughs> I'll get that right someday. <laughs> it is Jean Giono's Enamond. 
Uh, have you read that one yet? I have not read that one yet. Okay, fairly short. I did start it yesterday um, as I you know lay around trying to recover. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you this, it made me not feel, you know, not recognize that I wasn't feeling well, which is a mm. big thing, a big deal to me. If, if something can take my mind off of when I'm feeling that way, right. um, it's, that's a great thing. So Jean Giono's uh, Enemonde, and it is, um, it, it's translated by Bill Johnston, who did the translation of uh, Stone Upon Stone. So, oh, okay. Uh, which I did love. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I've read um, the only book of Jono's that I've read so far is Melville, mm-hmm. which I really liked. But I have yeah. several others. I don't have that one yet, but I am happy to pick up a copy because um, I just based on what I know about Jono, based on Melville and then just other people's raving about those books. Uh-huh. Um, I'm very happy to do that. So that's a great choice. Awesome. Well, good. Right. Good. We'll talk more about that one in a, in a, a month, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, I hope people will join in either whether they already read it or whether they'd like to just grab a copy off their shelf or purchase a copy and, and kind of read along so that when we talk about it, they can share their own thoughts. That would be fun. Well, the right. book that I chose is Aphasia by Mauro Javier Cardenas. Okay. you know this one? I've... I think I've seen the cover. I'm trying to remember if I ever got a copy. I don't think I have a copy of it. Okay. I have not so read we're it. We're both going to be headed to the bookstore, which, you know, is just terrible for both of us. Well, uh, as, as we're recording this today is Independent Bookstore Day. Oh, so good you know, point. So. <laughs> yeah. We might have to make a trip. Well, this is a book I've seen a lot of buzz about over the last couple of years. And from people that I trust, including Mark Haber, he tweeted, um, reading Aphasia, a strange, funny, and brilliantly written book. Dating, Fatherhood, and Lost Sisters. And he says that several authors keep coming up, which is part of the reason that I thought it might appeal to you. Um, I'll mention those in just a second. But then Dustin Illingsworth called it his favorite novel of 2020. So it comes with high praise from people who whose taste I, I trust. And the names of other authors, authors that I keep seeing that are either mentioned in this book or that um, style-wise it seems to correlate with are Krasna Horkai, Zabald, Virginia Woolf and Thomas Bernhard. So based on that, I figured it would be a fun read. And, and I thought I wouldn't be putting oh, yeah. you out no. too much to have you read a book like that. So oh, this is exciting. Yeah, that's the one I chose. All right. You know, the thing that makes me feel stupid, I'm pretty sure I did get a copy of that, at least in, in an ARC form. Uh-oh. But it is tough to, you know, when you get so many, it can be tough as we've talked about before. And I don't think I have it anymore, but that's okay. I'm happy to go buy okay. a finished, a finished copy. In fact, even, even more excited to do that than yeah. just try and search up a, a an ARC. Um, but yeah, nice. Okay. So two books from two, you know, publishers that I think we like, uh, Archipelago from mine and um, FSG was the one who originally published Aphasia, but right. And their paperback is out by Picador here in okay. the U.S. So, Perfect. all right. Well, that's exciting. Two short books on our assigned reading. And I, I made me, it made me wonder, and I may, I wonder if listeners will wonder the same thing. You know, we started out with our assigned reading about some, a couple of short stories, and now we're doing two short books. Are we going to do a long book assigned reading someday? Do we have Ooh. that courage? I don't know. We don't know yet. I don't know either. <laughs> let's, if let's we do, start. we'll have to do like, we'll assign it and then we'll, we'll read it one year from now. We'll, or we'll talk about right. it. Right. We'll have, we'll have time to, to get through it for sure. Um, but this, this four weeks to get through these two books, I think is going to be quite easy 
for us to do. And I'm looking forward to the conversation because um, it's just nice sometimes to be able to really dig into a couple of things. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a blast. Hope other people will join us. Absolutely. And if you have any questions about the books or anything like that, let us know um, and send us your thoughts. If you do get a chance to read them or have read them, we'll we'll work on sharing some of those with our episode um, if we get some in. But for today, I think we are we are once again um, showing that these half-hour episodes were never really going to be a thing <laughs> as we get to the hour and 45-minute mark on my time. Right. But uh, here we go. <laughs> All it's right. just thanks, too much listeners. fun. And everybody, have a good one. Yep, thanks, everybody. you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can follow Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a Patreon at patreon.com mooks. Until next time. Thank you.